This episode is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating shows. We're enjoying it, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. On our last show, we explored the history and meaning of this big idea, the social contract, tracing it all the way back to ancient Greece with Princeton professor Melissa Lane. But today, we're turning to the here and now. We're asking this question, what do we owe each other? And it's at the heart of this season of Future Hindsight. We're trying to reimagine a social contract for the 21st century and to think about how we could repair it and what each of us can do toward that repair. Our guest today, Minou Shafiq, first wondered about what she calls the architecture of opportunity. When she would visit her mother's village in Egypt, she would see girls who looked like her, but who couldn't go to school, had little choice about who they would marry or how many children they would have. Their choices and opportunities were stifled by the accident of their birth. She questioned the random unfairness of it all, and that question led Baroness Shafiq to a career in economics. She was the youngest ever vice president at the World Bank. She shaped economic policy at the International Monetary Fund and the Bank of England and served as the top official in Britain's Department for International Development. Today, Baroness Shafiq is director of the London School of Economics and author of What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract for a Better Society. And I caught up with her at her home in London. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Mila. It's great to be here. So I was struck by your story from childhood in Egypt because I had similar feelings as a young girl in Indonesia where I grew up. I think children have a really strong sense of what is unfair. Uh, I'm interested in how you've held onto that sense of what is and isn't fair and carried it through your work. How has it framed your understanding of social contract and social mobility? So for me, uh, that feeling of empathy and, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, I think it's just something that has stayed with me forever. Um, part of it was because I worked in developing countries and worked on international development issues and was often in situations where I saw people who were living under very different conditions than than myself. And so I think that kept the flame alive, really, of uh, a sense of how random opportunity is. And I think my own family's experience of having been relatively well off in Egypt, losing things during the nationalizations and having to start from scratch, it just makes you aware that material things can disappear very suddenly and you can suddenly find yourself in very, very different circumstances. And I try and hold on to that feeling because I think it keeps you honest. Well, I admire that you have stayed with it and written this book. And uh, you talk at length, really, about how the social contract is broken. And we hear about that everywhere you go, on television, on radio, 
And so how is it broken? In what ways do you think about that? So I think there are two key drivers that have broken our current social contract, and they are the changing role of women and technology. The changing role of women because our whole social contract in society has been premised on the idea that women look after the young and the old for free. But in a world where more women than men go to university, where more women are working and highly talented and educated and, and want to contribute in, in the labor market, that assumption no longer holds. And so the pressures that we see on families, on caring for the elderly, are manifestations of that broken social contract. And technology has also, I think, been the second key driver. Technology has changed work. And it's changed what we need from our educational systems. The old technologies used to reward physical strength. Today, they re reward a knowledge economy. And the kinds of ways that we work, in many ways accelerated by COVID, of course, mean that work has become much more flexible. And the way we organize work and organize our educational system hasn't caught up with this much more flexible, digital, and dynamic labor market that we're all in. So let's talk a little bit about women first. They're so central to your book. And I think as a woman, one of the things that was really surprising uh, and I didn't realize is that 20 to 40 percent of productivity gains in the United States between 1960 and 2010 could be attributed to diversifying the labor force. And that is in large part due to women. It's a fantastic statistic. And it really shows how having a more inclusive society increases productivity. Because in the olden days, employers would just fish in a very small pool of white men for talent. And as the civil rights movement spread and equalities legislation passed, employers increasingly were drawing on talent from women and black men and ethnic minorities. And that can actually demonstrably show that they were able to match people to the jobs that suited them best and increase productivity. In fact, the IMF estimates that if we could close these kind of gender gaps in our labor markets, we could increase GDP by 35%. So it's not just about equity, it's about productivity and using all the talent in society most efficiently. Yeah, I, I also was struck by your through line about productivity, efficiency. I mean, it's really classic for an economist. I feel like, is this is it that you're not only frustrated by the inequities, but also by the inefficiencies? Absolutely. Because one of the things that makes me crazy is, you know, all of the wasted talent, all of these talented women, children who happen to be born into a poor family or in an ethnic minority that faces discrimination, all that talent is wasted in our society. One of the other uh, bits of research uh, from the London School of Economics that I cite in the book is this work that was done on so-called lost Einsteins, which looked at kids who had the exact same maths and science skills in fourth grade, and then looked decades later as to how many of them created inventions and had patents. And what it showed is that if you happen to be born into a rich family or you happen to be born in a wealthy area, you were 10 times more likely to have a patent and be an innovator. And all those kids who had the same skills in fourth grade, who never got the opportunity to be inventive and creative, all that talent was lost to society. And if we could tap into that talent, we could increase innovation and creativity and productivity for everyone. I also wonder whether you think your approach is 
in part to right a moral wrong, you know, this sort of inherent unfairness of the luck of our birth, you know, whichever side we end up being born on. Yeah. So the famous philosopher John Rawls had this idea that if we were going to create a just society, we would design it behind a veil of ignorance. And that veil of ignorance would prevent us from knowing where we would land in that society, whether we would be on the bottom or the top. And you'd want to design a society so that no matter where you started, you would think it was fair. And and I think that's a very powerful metaphor that we all need to think about whether if the randomness was taken out, would we feel that our society is a fair one? And, you know, the numbers are pretty stark in many countries. You know, in the U.S., to go from the bottom of the income distribution to the middle takes about five generations. That's a very long time. You know, the American dream was supposed to be about a much quicker pace of social mobility and opportunity. Other countries do a better job. In Denmark, it takes two generations, uh, and social mobility is a lot more fluid. And I think we need to think very hard about why that opportunity has been diminished in in many of our societies. You uh, really address the architecture of opportunity, as you call it, so well. One of the ways you do that is that you frame the social contract in terms of risk sharing. What do you mean by that? Mm. One of the things that has put huge pressure on our social contract is so many risks have now been put on individuals uh, rather than being shared collectively. A really good example of that is pensions. Uh, So people now are expected to save for their own retirement and manage that resource by themselves, usually through things in the U.S. like 401k plans. And you know, when you do surveys of people, the vast majority of people can't don't know the difference between a stock and a bond. And imposing that risk of having to manage your retirement funds by yourself is not a very sensible way to manage it. Those risks are much better managed collectively uh, and pooling resources among many individuals and getting professionals to manage them for you. And I think that's a really good example of where a risk that used to be borne by society has now been put on individuals. And I think the other thing that's changed in terms of risk is, you know, it used to be that employers were responsible for providing various insurance for their employees, health insurance, unemployment insurance, sick pay, and so on. But as work has become more flexible, those benefits are no longer provided by employers. And that's another set of risks that people are having to carry as individuals rather than sharing them with others. Yeah, so this is a good uh, segue into my next question. Help me understand what you mean by meaningful work and how that fits into the social contract. Mm. So uh, some people, when they look at the current state of our social contract, say, oh, well, we should just pay people a universal basic income, and that will solve the problem. I don't think that's a good idea because I think a part of the social contract in every society is that able-bodied adults contribute when they're of working age in exchange for being looked after when they're young and they're old. And I think that contributing when you're an able-bodied adult is a part of meaningful work. And meaningful work is an important value for many people. When we look at what makes people happy around the world, when they do surveys of people that they ask them on a one to 10 scale, are you satisfied with your life? The number one thing people say is health is the biggest determinant of my happiness, both physical and mental health. 
Second is the quality of my relationships. And third is, do I have meaningful work? And people who don't have meaningful work are usually dissatisfied with their lives. Yeah. So um, in the last few decades, you know, especially in the United States, there has been very aggressive union busting and more and more uh, temporary work, gig work, precarious work, basically. How can meaningful work actually happen if we continue on this path? So in the book, one of the policy arguments I make is that we need to move to a system where all workers, regardless of the nature of their contract, whether it's a gig job or a flexible part-time job, etc., should get benefits in proportion to how much they work. That's not that complicated to organize. Um, and I think in many parts of the world, people are shifting in that direction. In the UK, for example, the Supreme Court here recently ruled that Uber drivers are employees and they deserve benefits. And I think more pressure in that direction is an essential part of what a new social contract with employers needs to look like. Yeah, I hope they, I mean, in the United States, we have something, we have the opposite thing going on with Prop 22 that uh, passed in California. And I know Lyft is, is basically paying for big campaigns in other states uh, in here in the U.S. I want to talk about what you call the child penalty, the cost burden and quality of ch child care in the U.S. rarely makes the front pages. Uh, it's mentioned in political campaigns, but really very rarely tackled in office, although I know Biden is trying, um, but like so far unsuccessfully. So COVID has, as it has with so many other cracks in the social contract, blown this right open. So what are the consequences of neglecting childcare in our social contract? The way societies organize childcare has huge consequences for women and their ability to stay in the labor market. You know, if you think about it, maternity leave says to women, you stay at home and take care of your child. Paternity leave says to a man, you can stay home for a few days to contribute to taking care of your new child. If you provide good quality public child care or vouchers to families to say, we're going to give you money to help you get private child care, that's saying to families, society is going to support you and help you to raise your child. And what you see in different countries is the more high-quality childcare there is, the more women stay in the workforce. It also has a huge impact for pay gaps. The gender pay gap is basically about children. What happens in most societies is you see that these days, more women go to university than men. They graduate. They earn the same as men initially. But as soon as the first child is born, their wages diverge because women shift to part-time work or flexible work. They earn less, they get less experience, they get promoted less, and the gender pay gap starts there. This child penalty is huge. It varies by countries. In the Nordic countries like Sweden and Denmark, women get about 25% less as a child penalty as a result of having children. In the U.S., it's about between 30 and 45 percent. In Germany and Austria, it's about 50 to 60 percent. So women take a huge hit. But it's not just women earning less. It's society not benefiting from the productivity and talents of all those women. And if we had all those women in the workforce paying taxes, contributing to innovation and productivity, everyone would be better off. So it's it's such a good investment and something we underinvest in terribly. 
you know, when I read your book, there are so many times where I thought this, but especially here, uh, and that is, how come we never talk about that? How come we don't talk about uh, the gender pay gap being something that actually prevents us as a society as a whole to benefit from this talent pool? It's a real problem. I think part of the traditional social contract was that raising children was solely the responsibility of families. And again, it was premised on that assumption that women's labor is free and they can provide this service to society. I think because as women have become increasingly educated, that social construct is no longer sustainable. And the cost of women not being in the workforce is very high because they are educated and talented. And so I think we need to think of childcare infrastructure in the same way that we think of we have an educational system, we have a health system, and we need a care system that enables women to stay in work, both when children are young, but also when parents are old. And more often than not, again, as we saw in COVID, the responsibility for caring for the elderly falls on women. So what is, in your mind, the policy prescription in terms of setting up this infrastructure? Well, I think the best scenario is to give families a menu of, of, of options, uh, and that should include parental leave for both parents so that either the man or the woman can help stay at home if they want to take care of infants, but also financial support or publicly provided high-quality childcare so that both parents can stay in the workplace knowing that the society is helping them raise their children. And In addition to having a sort of good menu of options for caring for children, we also need to invest so much more in early years education. And I talk a lot about that in the book as well. It's an area that most societies underinvest in. It's one of the highest return investments we can make in terms of future health and income of those children. And it's the best way to intervene on social mobility. And if you really want to help poor kids in deprived backgrounds. Doing it early, before they're three years old, before they ever get to school, is the cheapest and most effective way to give those kids opportunity. Yes. I mean, I feel like we know this research has existed for a long time and people talk about it, but uh, we don't ever seem to be able to find the money for it because this is the question that people always ask, you know, how do we pay for it? So, How do you envision a new fiscal policy to address the cost of this kind of risk sharing? I mean, I think of it as an investment. There's a very nice study that was done uh, in Chicago, which showed that young people who got uh, a visit from uh, a community health worker to help parents provide better nutrition and mental stimulation to their children, those children... 20, 30 years later, had higher incomes, higher education, less rates of criminality, less lower rates of alcoholism, lower teenage pregnancies. Those very low-cost early interventions were an investment that saved millions and millions later on in life. So I think the argument that we don't have the money isn't really credible when you think of it as an investment. Okay, so then how can we persuade people that it is an investment? Because people don't seem to think about it this way. How can you make that fiscal policy stick? So I think part of it is showing these numbers and and pitching it not as an additional piece of, of welfare spending, but really showing that it's an investment that will have real payoffs to society. It's part of the reason why in the book I talk a lot about 
the productivity benefits. You know, if women can stay in the workforce, that generates more taxes and that enables you to pay for a lot of these additional services and provides, and then some, and a bit extra as well. So I think demonstrating that is really, really important. When we come back, I'll be asking Minou Shafiq about how we get corporations and big business to do their fair share toward the social contract. But first, I wanted to talk to you about the Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018. Its goal is to make you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. There is an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. I recommend you check out Jordan's conversation with Tamar El-Nuri, not his real name, about being undercover as a Muslim FBI agent. They talk about how an agent is trained, blends in with criminals, hooks a mark, and Tamar's book, American Radical, Inside the World of an Undercover Muslim FBI Agent. If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's get back to my conversation with Baroness Benou Shafiq. We're talking about her book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract for a Better Society. You mentioned taxes. <laughs> so let's talk about taxes. Mm. Uh, we all know we need taxes to pay for these common goods, but you cited that 91 uh, Fortune 500 companies don't pay federal taxes, for example, Amazon. And it seems very hard to make them accountable for that. So how can we address that? So I think this is a key part of the new social contract with business. I think people find it no longer acceptable that major corporations use tax havens to avoid paying tax. And the recent agreement at uh, the G20 to, to say there's a minimum global corporate tax, I think is a good step in the right direction because in the past, countries were competing with each other to try and attract corporations with lower and lower tax rates. And this race to the bottom has to have a floor underneath it. And so I think a minimum global corporate tax is a really good first step. I think also now there's an expectation that companies should pay tax in the communities in which they operate, that having a brass plaque in some tax haven far away is not acceptable and paying your tax there when you're operating in my community is no longer acceptable. So I think corporate taxes have been on a downward trend for the last 20 to 30 years everywhere in the world. And I think that's going to be reversed. And I think that's a good thing. I also think we have to start thinking seriously about things like carbon taxes if we are going to make progress on climate change. And I would definitely support the creation of carbon taxes. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think the progressivity of our tax system has declined over time. And, you know, I think it's really important to remind people, nobody likes to pay taxes, but it's important to remind people that when you pay tax, uh, it's not just about transferring money from people who are highly productive and rich to people who are less productive and poor. You're actually paying back for all the investments that society has made in you, in your schooling, 
in all the infrastructure that you've used in your life, in your family over many, many decades. And so there is, it isn't just about redistribution among current population, it's also redistribution over our own lives and paying back for investments made in us, with which if we hadn't had those investments, we would have never been successful. And so reminding people that that taxation is about that as well is, I think, a really important part of a new social contract. Yeah, I, I see that. It, you know, reinforces the the frame that it's a virtuous circle that we're in if we keep going back, you know, and then hopefully it'll it'll make our society stronger. So one question I have about taxes is that should we spend that money differently as opposed to, you know, making sure people actually pay the taxes? But do we need a fundamental reorientation of our priorities? For example, should we spend less money on wars? I do think that a new social contract needs a new pattern of spending. And I think a lot of that spending is around investment in people, early years education, education in general, but also more focus on adult learning and adult education. We know, for example, people are going to live much longer lives. Younger people are going to have careers that don't last 30 years. They're going to last 50 years, maybe even 60 years. The old model, our old social contract was you get your education from about age six to your early 20s, and then you're off and that's supposed to last you a lifetime. That's completely outdated in a world where careers are going to be 50 or 60 years. And so we need to change our educational system and fund it so that people can go back in their 40s and their 50s and their 60s to retool and reskill. I think focusing more of our spending power on those kinds of investments will have huge payoffs uh, for our societies. And yes, we may have to spend a bit less on other things. So uh, since you're mentioning older people, Let's talk about the problem of old people, you know, not to be uncharitable, but they wield outsized political influence. And as you argue, they actually tend to block reform in advanced economies by the way that they're voting. So is there a fix for that? You're absolutely right. You can show across many countries that as societies age, they spend more on pensions and health care for the elderly and less on education and the environment, which are things that younger people might care more about. Older people vote. And whenever I talk to young people, I say, demonstrating is good, but also vote, uh, because that is still a really important source of influence. I mean, a really radical idea would be to weight people's votes by how much life they have left. Uh, And so if I have a longer life expectancy ahead of me, if I'm young, my vote should count more in the society than someone who's old. Now, that's a very radical idea, and I think it would be very hard to orchestrate. But, uh, you know, other countries have done things like have somebody in government whose job it is to worry about future generations and make sure that that perspective is brought to decisions around investments and priorities, for example. I think also, you know, young people have also shown that social movements like around climate change are a really powerful way for them to get their priorities heard. And I think that's a really welcome thing. I also think, frankly, that older people, and I count myself among the older people, you know, have to think about future generations much more in their own decision making and on questions like retirement ages and working longer I think it's an obligation we have to younger generations to be willing to work longer in order to pay for 
more health care, more pensions, and restoring the environment. And I, I think that's part of an intergenerational social contract. And your prescription throughout the book is to have more productivity, to grow the economy, to expand by basically making the economy more efficient. And nobody talks about it in this way. People are like, no, we need austerity. Uh, but we don't. Yeah. We can do it this other way, but nobody talks about it. Yeah, absolutely, Mila. I mean, part of the reason I wrote this book was to try and find a way to talk about these issues in a productive way. And I found that this idea of the social contract allows you to talk about these difficult issues with this notion of reciprocity and mutual benefit. And unlike many people who, some people say, well, we need austerity. Other people say we need more redistribution. What I'm saying is we need what economists call more, more pre-distribution, more investment in each other to solve these problems. And in many ways, to grow the pie, so we'll all be better off. The pre-distribution thing is a specific type of problem, though. People just can't get their heads around pre-distribution. It's so difficult. I feel like, is this a time horizon problem? You know, by which I mean, we tend to only address yeah. the challenges as they become acute. But the real solutions, as you discuss in the, in the book, are generational and our politics is not patient, right? Like, how can we convince people to focus on the long term and, you know, be willing to make these kinds of decisions and vote for the politicians who are willing to do this kind of work? Yeah, it's a very good question. You know, I think... Um, You're absolutely right that politics in modern democracies is very short-termist. I have a little bit of hope because, partly because of COVID, I don't think we've seen the political aftermath of COVID yet. I think it will take a few years to show itself, but I do think people will want different things after COVID. And most politicians have this conventional wisdom that people vote their pocketbooks. That if GDP goes up during my tenure, people will re-elect me. And actually, what our research shows that a better predictor of who people vote for is whether my well-being improves during your tenure. And that well-being is the kinds of things I've discussed, my health, the quality of my relationships, meaningful work. And I keep trying to spread this message, particularly to politicians, that if you want to get reelected, improve people's well-being. Don't worry as much about GDP. No, GDP matters, but it's not the most important thing. My sense is that post-COVID and post this experience, people will be caring more about improving their well-being and hopefully will vote for politicians who deliver on that. Yeah, hear, hear. Uh, <laughs> um, so I want to go back to the carbon tax that you mentioned. You know, we are actually going to be specifically talking about reimagining the social contract in light of the climate crisis in a few weeks. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on economic policy here and specifically about the carbon tax, because the way that you explained it was so elegant in a way that I think most people don't understand. So the reason I think a, a carbon tax is a necessary, but not sufficient, but a necessary part of the response to the climate crisis is that it gets into the nooks and crannies of the economy. So when you go to the supermarket and you pick up an avocado, the price of that avocado will embed in it the price of transporting it to wherever you are, uh, the fertilizer costs that are embedded in it, and so on and so forth. And the, the price will carry the carbon content. You don't have to read a label. You don't have to have some special knowledge about how it was produced it will sort of automatically affect people's behavior. 
The usual argument against carbon taxes is it might be regressive. It will increase taxes on things that many poor people consume. So if you recall in France, when they tried to raise diesel taxes, there were huge riots and the yellow vests came out and brought the country to a standstill. But what they were protesting was not that we needed to do something on climate. They were protesting as to who was carrying the burden. And there are ways to design carbon taxes to make sure that they are progressive, that wealthier people carry more of the costs, and that you compensate poorer people for those costs. The important thing is to change the incentives that we all face when we buy things. And that's why I think a carbon tax is important. But it's not sufficient. We have to do more. We have to invest in new green technologies. We have to have regulations that incentivize people to change behaviors. For example, more incentives and regulations that encourage people to use electric vehicles or to use public transport. So it's part of a wider package, but it is a really powerful tool. Yeah, I like that. Uh, So another example that I really loved was about how whales capture carbon, and that's worth $2 million. And I thought, what? First of all, how did you find that statistic? And, uh, (laughs) And secondly... If we were to talk about our environment in this way, and, you know, meaning like this is the cost benefit to us, that isn't like, oh, dear, the whales are becoming extinct, but, oh, actually, this is an asset to us and we need to protect it. Well, so the whale story actually comes from the International Monetary Fund, where they actually have calculated the carbon services provided by whales. And it is about $2 million a year. And an elephant is about a million dollars a year. And it really goes to the issue of how we measure things and how we're not measuring things properly. Part of the illusion of the present economic model is that uh, all these environmental costs that we're imposing by degrading our environment are free because we don't measure them. Uh, And also all of the potential benefits of protecting the environment better are not captured because we're not measuring them. And so I think a lot of economists are starting to think about how do we do a better job of actually capturing the true costs of our current model and the potential benefits of a greener and more sustainable model. The other thing that we've done is think a little bit, and in the book I talk about this, is that, you know, if we think about the environment as an asset, as you've just said, Mila, uh, if you look at the three kind of assets that we have in the world, physical assets, infrastructure, buildings, cars, or human capital, and the environmental capital we have. Over the course of of the last century, you can show that we have massively increased our physical capital in the world. We've got more buildings, roads, all the infrastructure that we've created. We've increased our human capital also quite a lot, but we've massively degraded our environmental capital. And the assets that we're leaving to the next generation are just out of balance. And that we have degraded our environmental capital to an, to an inefficient degree. It's like you have a portfolio of investments uh, and you've massively run down one investment, which has a very high return. I'm hoping that your book will inspire many more people to talk about it in this way. Uh, you know, you insist that your book is not a blueprint. It does express a vision about where we should be going. Because I know you started this before COVID and, you know, it came out in the middle. Yes. But uh, why do you believe that this could be the moment to reimagine a social contract? My original motive was a sense of frustration at how divided our societies were in every country in the world. I saw that manifested in politics in so many countries. You know, the U.S. is a very extreme case where 
politics is extremely divided. But it's not just the U.S. It's across Europe. It's in Philippines. It's in Russia. You know, across the world, we see incredibly divided politics and societies. And I wanted to understand why. Why are we so polarized? And why have we lost a sense of common purpose in our societies? And the more I read and the more I thought about it, it led me to thinking that it's because our social contract is broken and hasn't kept up with the challenges that we face. And I found the concept of the social contract a really useful way to think about a whole range of issues ranging from childcare to climate change to the future of work. And I try really hard in the book to be constructive and to provide solutions, not just diagnosis. And in every area, you could imagine a better social contract, a better arrangement between workers and their employers, for example, a better arrangement in families that allows us to bring out all the talent of our societies, a better deal between the generations where older generations help invest in the younger generation in exchange for being looked after when they're very old. So it was really an attempt to remind people why thinking not just about me, but thinking about we collectively uh, is a is a path to not just better equality, but better well-being and more efficient and productive economies. So on that note, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Well, you know, I one of the things that always makes me hopeful is talking to young people. And I'm very lucky because I run a university and so I get to do it all the time. <laughs> and, you know, this generation has has been through a very tough period and I think it's affected them and I think their aspirations are are changed by this this collective trauma that we've all been through. And so young people always make me hopeful. And I also, I feel like we're at a critical juncture and there are moments in history when you have a huge shock, you know, think of the Great Depression, think of World War II, when societies are at a fork in the road. And it doesn't always go well. Uh, They don't always make the right choices. But there are big choices to be made right now. And I feel that we are at such a, critical juncture. And the reason I wrote the book was to try and hopefully nudge the choices in a in a better direction. So I hope people read it with that uh, with that perspective. So with that in mind, what are two things that an everyday person can do so that we can contribute to this reimagining this repair of the social contract? Well, there are many things. So first, I think for Families, having a more equal distribution of work in the household is a way to make sure that the talent of women is used productively in our society. I think we all make decisions as consumers as to what we buy and having that be informed by our values in terms of the environment, in terms of workers' rights, companies that do a good job on that is, is another way that we can all do something. And I think in our daily lives, We all encounter people who, for whatever reason, may not have had an opportunity. And if we have an opportunity to share opportunity with others in our workplaces, in our communities, just creating those moments of opportunity can be so transformative. I think we can all remember moments in our lives when somebody opened a door for us. And so if you have a chance to open the door, do that and spread opportunity. I like it. That's very hopeful. Well, thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. Congratulations on your book. I really enjoyed it, and I hope a lot of people read it and are inspired. Thank you so much, Mila. It was such a pleasure to to speak with you. 
So you just heard Minouche talk about how we need a new social contract to meet the challenges of climate change. And I really wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of what we can do to really bring forth systemic change and not just bringing your tote back to the grocery store or composting or eating vegan, but really figure out a way how we can make a difference, a new social contract for the climate crisis. For our next show, I'm going to be joined by Kea Chatterjee, Executive Director of the U.S. Climate Action Network. I think that we can struggle for both things at the same time, right? You know, climate justice and a functional democracy. And in fact, we really have no choice but to struggle for both things at the same time. Saving the planet and saving democracy. Just a couple of little things. Next time on Future Hindsight. This podcast was produced for Future Hindsight by Sarah Burningham, Riva Goldberg, Zoe Sullivan, and Bart Warshaw of the Cocoon Collective. Zach Travis is our associate producer. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.